Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jacob Lawson. So, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time. Uh, So, what I'm going to do is every night, well, the segment is going to be called Storytime with Jacob. So, what that entails is that every night, I am going to post a chapter so you can either listen to or follow along or, you know, just to help you sleep. Tonight's selection is, well, the first book I'm going to read is The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Now first I want to start off with the back cover. Winning means fame and fortune. Losing means certain death. The Hunger Games have begun. In the ruins of a place known as North America lies the nation of Panam, a shining capital surrounded by twelve outlying districts. The capital is a harsh and cruel. The capital is harsh and cruel, and keeps the districts in line by forming by forcing them all to send one boy and one girl between the ages of 12 and 18 to participate in the Animal Hunger Games, a fight to the death on live TV. 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen regards it as a death sentence, within this, with regards it as a death sentence when she steps forward to take her sister's place in the games. But Katniss has been dead, has been close to dead before and survival. For her, is sex is second nature. Without really meaning to, she becomes a contender. But if she fight but if she is to win, she will have to start making choices in that way survival against humanity and life against love. A violent, jarring, speed rap of a novel that generates nearly constant suspense. I couldn't stop reading. Stephen King. Entertainment Weekly. I was so obsessed with this book. The Hunger Games is amazing. Stephanie Meyer, author of The Twilight Saga. Brilliantly plotted and perfectly paced. John Green, The New York Times Book Review. Part 1. The Tributes. One, when I wake up, the other side of the bed is cold. My fingers stretch out, seeking Prim's worth, but finding only the rough canvas cover of the mattress. She must have had bad dreams and climbed in with our mother. Of course, of course she did. This is the day of the weeping. I pop myself on my elbow. I pop myself up on one elbow. There's enough light in the bedroom to see them. My little sister Prim, curled up on one side, cocooned in my mother's body. Their cheeks pressed together. In sleep, my mother looks younger. Still worn, but not so beaten down. Prim's face is as fresh as a raindrop. As lovely as the primrose for which she was named. My mother was very beautiful once, too. Or, so they tell me. Sitting at Prim's knees... 
regarding her, the world is the world's ugliest cat. Mashed nose, half of one ear missing, eyes the color of rotting squash. Prim named him Buttercup, insisting on that his muddy yellow coat matched the bright flower. He hates me. Or, or at least, distrusts me. Even though it was years ago, I think he remembers how I tried to drown him in a bucket when Prim brought him home. Scrawny kitten, belly swollen with worms, crawling with fleas. The last thing was I needed another mouth to feed. But Prim begged so hard, cried even. I had to let him stay. It turned out okay. My mother got rid of the vernon, and he is a, and he is a born mouser. Even catches the occasional rat. Sometimes when I clean a kill, I feed Buttercup the entrails. He has stopped hissing at me. Entrails, no hissing. This is the closest we will ever come to love. I swing my legs off the bed and slide into my hunting boots, supple leather that has molded to my feet. I pull on trousers, a shirt, tuck the long dark braid up into a, up into a cap, and grab my forage bag. On the table under a wooden bowl to protect it from hungry rats and cats alike sits a perfect little goat cheese wrapped in basil leaves. Prim's gift to me on reaping day. I put the cheese carefully in my pocket as I slip outside. Our part of District 12, nicknamed The Seam, is usually crawling with coal miners heading out on the morning shift at this hour. Men and women with hunched shoulders, swollen knuckles, many who have long since stopped trying to scrub the coal dust out of their broken nails, the lines of their sunken faces. But today, the black cinder streets are empty. Shutters are on the squat gray houses are closed. The weeping isn't until two. May as well sleep in, if you can. Our house is almost at the edge of the seam. I only have, a, only have to pass a few gates to reach the scruffy field called the meadow. Separating the meadow from the woods, in fact, is enclo- in fact enclosing all of District 12, is a high chain-link fence topped with barbed wire loops. In theory, it's supposed to be electrified 24 hours a day as a deterrent to the predators that live in the woods. Packs of wild dogs, lone cougars, bears, they used to threaten our streets. But since we're lucky to get two or three hours of electricity in the evenings, it's usually safe to touch even, it's usually safe to touch. Even so, I always take a moment to listen carefully for the hum that means the fence is live. Right now, it's silent as a stone. Concealed by a clump of bushes, I flatten out, my, I flatten out on my belly and slide under a two-foot stretch that has been loose for, you, that has been loose for years. There are, several, there are several other weak spots in the fence, but this one is so close to home, I almost always enter the woods here. As soon as I'm in the trees, I retrieve a bow and sheath of arrows from a hollow log. Electrified or not, the fence has been successful at keeping, at keeping the flesh eaters out of District 12, inside the woods where they roam freely. And there are added concerns like venomous, 
like venomous snakes, rabbit animals, and no real paths to follow. But there's also food if you know where to look, if you know where to find it. My father knew, and he taught me some before he was blown to bits in a mine explosion. There was nothing even to bury. I was eleven then. Five years later, I still wake up screaming for him to run. Even though trespassing in the woods is illegal and poaching carries the severest of penalties, more people would risk it if they had had weapons. But most are not bold enough to venture out with just a knife. My bow is a rarity. Crafted by my father along with a few others, I still keep hidden in the woods, carefully wrapped in waterproof covers. My father could have made good money selling them. But if the officials found out, he would have been publicly executed for inciting a rebellion. Most of the peacekeepers turned a blind eye to the few of us who hunt because they are as hungry for fresh meat as anybody is. In fact, they are among our best best customers. But the idea that someone might be arming the scene would never been allowed. In the fall, a few brave souls would sneak in the woods to harvest apples, but always inside of the meadow, always close enough to run back to the safety of District 12. If trouble arises, District 12 where you can starve to death in safety. I murder. Then I glance quickly over my shoulder. Even here in the middle of nowhere, you worry might someone might overhear you. When I was younger, my mother I scared my mother to death. The things I would blurt out about District 12, about the people who rule our country, Pan Am, and the far-off city called the capital. Eventually, I understood this would this would only lead us to more trouble. So I learned to hold my tongue and to turn my features into a different different mask so that no one would ever read my thoughts, do my work quietly in school, make only polite small talk in the public market, discuss little more than trades in the hub, which is the black market where I'd make most of my money. Even at home, why I'm less pleasant. I avoid avoid discussing tricky topics like the weeping or food shortages or the Hunger Games. Prim might begin to repeat, repeat my words and then where would we be? In the woods waits the only person with whom I can be myself, Gail. I could feel the muscles of my face relaxing and my pace quickening as I climbed the hills to our place, a rock ledge overlooking a valley, a thicket of berry bushes protects us from unwanted eyes. The sight of him waiting there brings me brings on a smile. Gail says I never smile except in the woods. Hey catnip, says Gail. My real name is Katniss, but when I first told him, I had barely whispered it, so he thought I said catnip, 
when this crazy lynx started following me around the woods looking for handouts. Because it became his official nickname for me. I finally had to kill the lynx because it scared off game. I almost regretted it because he was a bad company. But I got a decent price for this pelt. Look what I shot. Gail holds up a loaf of bread with an arrow stuck in it. I, and I laugh. It's real bakery bread. Not the flat, dense loaves we make from our grain rations. I take it in my hands, pull out the arrow, and hold the puncture to the crust of my, to my nose, inhaling the fragrance that makes my mouth flood with saliva. Fine bread like this is for special occasions. Mmm, still warm, I say. He must have been at the bakery at the crack of dawn to trade for it. What did it cost you? Just a squirrel. Think the old man was feeling sentimental this morning, says Gail. Even wished me luck. Well, we all feel a little closer today, don't we? I say, not even bothering to roll my eyes. Prim left us a cheese. I pull it out. His expression brightens at, my, at the treat. Thank you, Prim. We'll have a real feast. Suddenly, he falls into a capital accent that, that he, as he mimics Effie Trinket. The manac... The manac... Manac... The manacally... The manacally upbeat woman who arrives once a year to read out names at the reaping. I almost forgot. Happy Hunger Games. He plucks a few blackberries from the bushes around us. And may the odds, he tosses a berry high in, the, in a high arc towards me. I catch it in my mouth and break the delicate skin with my teeth. The sweet tartness explodes across my tongue. Be ever in your favor. I finished with equal verve. We have to joke about it because the alternative is to be scared out of your wits. Besides, the capital accent is so affected, almost anything sounds funny in it. I watch as Gail pulls out his knife and slices the bread. He could be my brother. Straight black hair, olive skin, we even have the same gray eyes. But we're not related, at least not closely. Most of the families who work in the who work the mines resemble one another this way. That's why my mother and Prim, with their light hair and blue eyes, always look out of place. They are. My mother's parents were part of the small merchant class that caters to officials, peacekeepers, and the occasional seam customer. They ran an apothecary shop in the nicer part of District Twelve. Since almost no one can afford doctors, apothecaries all are healers. <clears throat> my father got to know my mother because of he hunts and he would collect medicinal herbs and send them to a shop to be brewed into remedies. Excuse me. Sorry, I'm just... Uh Seeing how long 
I might be able to finish this tomorrow. Hold on. Just a second. Okay. Uh. Ah, here we go. She must have really loved him. To leave her home for the seam. I try to remember... I try to remember that when all I can see is the woman who sat by, blank and unreachable, while her children turned to skin and bones. I try to forgive her for my for my father's sake, but to be honest, but to be honest, I'm not the forgiving type. Gail spreads the bread spreads the bread slices with a soft goat cheese, carefully carefully placing a basil leaf on each on each while strip the bushes of their berries. We settle back in a nook on the rocks from the play from this place. We are invisible, but we have a clear view of the valley, which is teeming with summer life, greens to gather, roots to dig. Fish iridescent in the sunlight. The day is glorious with a blue sky and soft breeze. The food's wonderful. The cheese sweeping. The cheese seeping into the warm bread. And the berries bust, bursting in our mouths. Everything would be perfect if this day wasn't a, was a, really was a holiday. If all the day off meant was roaming in the mountains with Gale. Hunting for tonight's supper. But instead... We have to be standing in the square at two o'clock, waiting for the names to be called out. We could do it, you know, Gail says quietly. What? I ask. Leave the district. Run off, live in the woods, you and I. We could make it, says Gail. I don't know how to respond. The idea is so preposterous. If we didn't have, if we didn't have so many kids... Yet quickly. They're not... They're not our kids, of course. But they might as well be. Gail's two little brothers and a sister. Prim. And you might as well throw in our mothers, too, because how would they live without us? Who would fill those mouths that are always asking for more? With both of us hunting daily... There are nights when game has to be swapped for lard and shoelaces or wool. Still nights when we go to bed with our stomachs growling. I never want to have kids, I say. I might. If I didn't live here, says Gail. But you do, I say irritated. Forget it, he snaps back. The conversation feels, feels all wrong. Leave? How can I leave Prim, who is the only person in the world I'm certain I love? And Gail is devoted to his family. We can't leave. So why bother talking about it? And even if we did, even if we did, where would this stuff about having kids come from? There's nothing, there's never been anything romantic between Gail and me. When we met, I was a skinny 12-year-old, and although he was two years older, 
He already looked like a man. It took a long time for us to even become friends, to stop haggling over every trade and begin helping out each other out. Besides, if he wants kids, Gail won't have any trouble finding a wife. He's good looking. He's strong enough to handle the work in the mines. He can hunt. You can tell all the you can tell by the way the girls whisper about him. When he walks by the school when he walks by in school that they want him. It makes me jealous, but not for the same not for the reason people would think. Good hunting partners are hard to find. What do you want to do? I ask. We can hunt, fish, or gather. Let's fish at the lake. We can we can leave our poles and gather in the woods. Get something nice for tonight, he says. Tonight, after the reaping, everyone is supposed to celebrate. And a lot of people do. Out of relief that their children are not spared, have been spared for another year. But at least two families will pull their shutters, lock their doors, and try to figure out how they will survive the painful weeks to come. We make it out well. We make it out. We make out well. The predators ignore us on a day when, th- when easier, tastier prey abounds. By late morning, we have a dozen fish, a bag of green, bag of greens, and the best of all, a gallon of strawberries. I found a patch a few years ago, but Gail had had the idea to string mesh around, to string mesh nets around to keep out the animals. On the way home, we swing by the hob, the black market that operates in an abandoned warehouse that once held a coal. When they came up with a more efficient system that transported the coal directly from the mines to the trains, the hob gradually took, our, took over the space. Most businesses are closed by this time on reaping day, but the black market is still fairly busy. We easily trade six, six of the fish for good bread. The other two for salt. Greasy Say, the bony old woman who serves bowls of hot soup from a large kettle, takes half the greens off our hands in exchange for a couple, couple of chunks of paraffin. We might do a tad better elsewhere, but we make an effort to keep on good terms with Greasy Say. She's the only one who can consistently be counted on to buy wild dog. If we don't hunt them on purpose, if you're attacked and you take out a dog or two, well, meat is meat. Once it's in the soup, I'll call it beef, Greasy Say says with a wink. But no one in the scene would turn up their noses for a good leg of wild dog. But the peacekeepers who, can, who come to the hob can afford to be a little choosier. When we finish our business at the market, we go to the back door of the mayor's house and sell half the strawberries, knowing he has particular fondness for them and can't afford our price. The mayor's daughter, Madge, opens the door. She's in my year at school. Being the mayor's daughter, you'd expect her to be a snob, but she's alright. She just keeps to herself, like me, since neither of us really has a group of friends. We seem to end up together at a lot of school.
eating lunch, sitting next to each other at assemblies, partnering for sports activities. We rarely talk, which suits us both just fine. Today, her drab school outfit has been replaced by an expensive white dress, and her blonde hair is done up with a pink ribbon. Weeping clothes. Pretty dress, says Gail. Madge shoots him a look. Trying to see if it's a genuine compliment or if he's just being ironic. It is a pretty dress. But the world would never... But she would never be wearing it ordinarily. She presses her lips together and smiles. Well, if I end up going to the Capitol, I want to look nice, don't I? Now it's Gail's turn to be confused. Does she mean it? Or is she just messing with him? I'm guessing the second. You won't be going to the Capitol, says Gil coolly. His eyes land on a small circular pin that adorns her dress. Real gold, beautifully crafted. It could keep a family in bread for months. What can you have? Five entries? I had six when I was just 12 years old. That's not her fault, I say. No, it's no one's fault, just the way it is, says Gail. Madge's face has become closed off. She puts the money for the berries in my hand. Good luck, Katniss. You too, I say, and the door closes. We walk toward the seam in silence. I don't like that Gail took a dig at Madge, but he's right, of course. The weeping system is unfair, and with the poor getting the worst of it, you become eligible for the reaping the day you turn 12. That year, your name is entered once, at 13 twice, and so on and so on, until you reach the age of 18. The final year of edu- eligibility, when your name goes into the pool seven times. That's true for every city, for every citizen, in all 12 districts, in the, in the entire country of Pan Am. But, they, but here's the catch. Say you are poor and starving as we were. You can opt to add your name more times in exchange for tessera. Each tessera is worth a merger's year, a merger year's supply of grain and oil for one person. You may do this for each of your family members as well. So at the age of 12, I had my name entered four times. Once because I had to, and three times for Tessera, for grain and oil, for myself, Prem, and my mother. In fact, every year I have needed to do this, and the entries are cumulative. So now, at the age of 16, my name will be in the reaping 20 times. Gail, who was 18, has either been helping or single-handedly feeding a family of five for seven years. We'll have his name in 42 times. You can see why someone like Madge, who has never been at a risk needing a tessera, can set him off. The chance of of her name being drawn is very slim compared to those who live in the scene. Not impossible, but slim. And even though the rules were set up by the capital, not the districts, 
and certainly not Madge's family. It is hard not to resent those who do not sign up for Tessera. Gail knows his anger at Madge is misdirected. On other days, deep in the woods, I listen to him rant about how the Tessera are just another tool to cause misery in our districts, in our district, a way to plant hatred between starving workers of the seam and those who can generally count on supper and thereby ensure we will never trust another. It's to the capital's advantage to us to have us divided among ourselves, he might say, if there are no ears to hear but mine. If it wasn't reaping day, if a gold with a girl pen and no tessera had not made what I'm sure she thought was a harmless comment, As we walk, I glance over at Gil's face, still smoldering underneath his stony expression. His rages seem pointless to me, although I never say no, so that's not what I can agree with him. I do, but what is it good about yelling about the capital in the middle of the woods? It doesn't change anything. It doesn't make things fair. It doesn't fill our stomachs. In fact, it scares off the nearby game. I let him yell, though. Better he does in the woods rather than in the district. Gail and I divide our spoils, leaving two fresh, a couple of loaves of good bread, greens, a quart of strawberries, salt, paraffin, and a bit of money for each. See you in the square, I say. Wear something pretty, he says flatly. At home, I find my mother and sister are ready to go. My mother wears a fine dress from her apothecary days. Prim is in my first reaping outfit, a skirt with a ruffled blouse. It's a bit big on her, but my mother has made it stay with pins, even though she's having trouble keeping the blouse tucked in the back. A tub of warm water waits for me. I scrub off the dirt and sweat from the woods, and even wash my hair. To my surprise, my mother has laid out one of her, old, one of her, love, one of her own lovely dresses for me. A soft blue thing with matching shoes. Are you sure? I ask. I'm trying to get past rejecting offers for help from her. For a while I was so angry. I wouldn't allow her to do anything for me. And this is something special. Her clothes from the past are very precious to her. Of course. Let's put your hair up too, she says. I let her towel dry and braid it up on my head. I, hard, I can hardly recognize myself the cracked mirror that leans against the wall. You look beautiful, says Prim in a hushed voice. And nothing like myself, I say. I hug her because I know these next few hours will be terrible for her. Her first weeping. She's about as safe as you can get. Since she's only entered once, I wouldn't let her take out any tessera. But she's worried about me. That the unthinkable might happen. I protect Prim in every way I can, but I'm powerless against the weeping. The anguish I always feel when she's in pain wells up my chest and threatens to register on my face. I notice her blouse has poured out of her skirt in the, in the back again, and I force myself to stay calm. Tuck your tail in, little duck, I say, smoothing the blouse back in place. Prim giggles, and she gives me a small 
quack. Quack yourself, I say with a light laugh. The kind, the, the kind only Prim can draw out of me. Come on, let's eat, I say, and I plant a quick kiss on the top of her head. The fish and greens are already cooking in a stew, but that would be for supper. We decide to save the strawberries and bakery bread for this evening's meal to make it a special, to make it special, we say. Instead, of, instead, we drink milk from Prim's goat, Lady, and eat the rough bread we made from the tessera grain. Although, no one has a much, of, no one has much appetite anyway. At one o'clock, we head for the square. Attendance is mandatory unless you are de- unless you are on death's door. This evening, officials will come around and check to see if this is the case. If not, you'll be imprisoned. It's too bad, really, that they hold the weeping in the square, one of the one of the few places in District Twelve that can be pleasant. The square is surrounded by shops, and on public market days, especially if there's good weather, it has. It has a holiday feel to it. But today, despite the bright banners hanging from the buildings, there's an air of grimness. The camera crews, perched like buzzards on rooftops, can only add to the effect. People file in and sign in. File in silently and sign in. The weeping is a good opportunity for the capital to keep tabs on the population as well. Twelve through eighteen-year-olds are herded in t- into roped areas marked off by ages, the oldest in the front, the youngest ones like Prim toward the back. Family members line up around the perimeter, holding tightly onto one another's hands. There are others too, who have not, who have one they love and have no one they love at stake, or who no longer care who slip among the crowd, taking bets on, t- on the two kids whose names will be drawn. Odds are given on their ages, whenever they are in the seam or merchant. If they will break down and weep, most refuse dealing with the racketeers, but carefully, carefully, these same people tend to be enforcers, informers, and who hasn't broken the law? I could be shot on a daily basis for hunting, but the appetites of those in charge protect me. Not everyone can claim the same. Anyway, Gail and I agree that if we have to choose between dying of hunger and a bullet on the head, the bullet would be much quicker. The space gets tighter and more claustrophobic as people arrive. The square is quite large, but enough to hold District Twelve's population around 8,000. Latecomers are directed to to the adjacent streets where they can watch the event on screens as it is televised live by the state. I find myself standing in a clump of sixteens from the scene. We all exchange terse nods and and then focus our attention to the temporary stage that is set up before the Justice Building. It holds three chairs, a podium, and two large glass balls, one for the boys and one for the girls. I stare at the paper slips in the girls' ball. Twenty of them have Katniss Everdeen on them in careful handwriting. Two of the three chairs with Madge's father, Mayor Undersea, who is a tall, balding man, and Effie Trinket, District 12's escort, fresh from the capital. 
with her scary white grin, pinkish hair, and spring green suit. They murmur to each other, and then look with a concern at the empty seat. Just as the town clock strikes two, the mayor steps up to steps up to the podium and begins to read. It's the same story every year. He tells us the history of Pan Am, the country that rose up out of the ashes from a place once that was once called North America. He lists the disasters, the droughts, the storms, the fires, the encroaching seas that swallowed up much of the land, the brutal lore for little sustenance remained. The result was Pan Am, a, shine, a shining capital ringed by thirteen districts, which brought peace and prosperity to its citizens. Then came the dark days. The uprising of the districts against the capital. Twelve were defeated, the thirteenth obliterated. The Treaty of Treason gave us new laws to guarantee peace and as our yearly reminder that the dark days must never be repeated. It gave us the Hunger Games. The rules of the Hunger Games are simple. In punishment for the uprising, each of the twelve districts must provide a girl, one girl and one boy called tributes to participate. The twenty-four tributes will be imprisoned in a vast outdoor arena that can hold anything from a burning desert to a frozen wasteland. Excuse me. Over a period of several weeks, the competitors might must fight to the death. The last tribute standing wins. Taking the kids from our districts, forcing them to kill one another while we watch? This is the capital's way of reminding us how we totally we how totally we are at their mercy. How little chance we would stand of surviving another rebellion. Whatever words they use, the message is clear. Look how we take your children and sacrifice them, and there is nothing you can do. If you lift a finger, we will destroy every last one of you, just as we did in District 13. To make it humiliating as well as torturous, the capital requires us to treat the Hunger Games as a festivity, a sporting event pitting every district against others. The last tribute alive receives a life, receives a life of ease back home, and their districts will be, will be showered with prizes largely consisting of food. All year, the capital will show the winning district gifts of grain and oil, even delicacies like sugar, while the rest of us battle starvation. It is both a time for repentance and a time for thanks, intones the mayor. He reads the list of past District 12 victors in 74 years. We have had exactly two. Only one is still alive. Hamish Abernathy. A paunchy, middle-aged man who, at this moment, appears hollowing something unintelligible, staggers onto the stage and falls into the third chair. He's drunk. Very. The crowd responds with its token applause, but he is confused and tries to give Effie Trinket a big hug, which she barely manages to fend off. 
The mayor looks distressed. Since all of this is being televised, right now District 12 is the laughingstock of Pan Am. And he knows it. He quickly tries to pull the attention back to the to the weeping by introducing Effie Trinket. Bright and bubbly as ever, Effie Trinket trots to the podium and gives her signature Happy Hunger Games! And may the odds be ever in your favor. Her pink hair must be a wig because the curls have drifted have shifted slightly off-center since, since her encounter with Hamish. She goes on a bit about what an honor it is to be here, although everyone knows that she's just aching to get bumped up to a better district, where they have proper victors, not drunks who molest you in front of the entire nation. Through the crowd, I spot Gail looking back at me with the ghost of a smile. As weeping goes... As weepings go, this one, at least, has a slight entertainment factor. But suddenly, I am thinking of Gale and his 42 names in that big glass ball, and how the odds are not in his favor. Not compared to, the, to a lot of the boys. And maybe he's thinking the same thing about me. Because his face darkens and he turns away. But there were still thousands of slips. I wish I could whisper to him. It's time for the drawing. Effie Trinket says, as she always does, Ladies first. And she crosses the glass ball with the girls' names. She reaches in, digs her hand deep into the ball, and pulls out a slip of paper. The crowd draws in a collective breath, and then he can hear a pin drop. And I'm feeling nauseous, and so desperately hoping it's not me, that it's not me, that it's not me, that it's not me. Effie Trinket crosses back to the podium, smooths the slip of paper, and reads out the name in a clear voice. And it's not me. It's Primrose Everdeen. Alright, so uh, tomorrow night I will read chapter two. So I hope you can, I hope you would enjoy that. And probably chapter three, depending on what I can do. But this is going to be something that is going to be a uh, uh, common occurrence because I've always wanted to do something like this. So, in the meantime, thank you for joining. Uh, and just as Effie Trinket says, Happy Hunger Games and may the odds be ever in your favor. Good night, everyone.